So we're going to be in Acts 15, 1 through 21. And so you can be turning there. It's also in your bulletin. But before we begin reading and going through, I'm going to try to set it up for us a little bit. Uh, what happens when grace comes to church? You're like, well, I thought we were a grace-centered church, right? What, what? Well, are we? I mean, are we grace-centered? What, what happens when grace enters the church? And to kind of illustrate this a little bit, I'm going to use um, a story about a giraffe and an elephant. And so there's giraffes and there's elephants, obviously, but one day there's a giraffe and an elephant, and they decide that they want to become friends. Um, they actually realize, like, hey, um, I like talking to you. You like talking to me. Let's be friends. And so the giraffe was like, hey, how about this? Why don't you come over to my house tonight, and I will cook you dinner, and we will eat a meal, and we'll play some games, and it will be great. And the elephant's like, sure, that sounds awesome. I can't wait. And sure enough, the elephant goes over to the giraffe's house um, shows up, and sure enough, the door into the house is shaped for a giraffe to enter and not for an elephant. The giraffe's like, my fault, my bad. Let's figure this out. He takes the door off his house so that the elephant can squeeze through uh, the doorway. So the elephant gets inside of the house with the giraffe, and they have a meal prepared. Uh, the giraffe has cooked his favorite food. He's put it on the table, and the elephant comes to sit down on a chair made for a giraffe. Obviously, this doesn't work. The chair breaks, and the giraffe says, no worries. We will eat on the floor. And so they eat this meal on the floor, but, you know, the giraffe's favorite food is not necessarily the elephant's favorite food. So the elephant, sure enough, takes a bite. It's like, I do, I'm not a big fan of this meal. But he finishes his plate. Trip, Luke, are you listening? And he, my sons, finish your plate. Eat please. Um, he finishes plate, enjoys it to a degree out of courtesy, and drafts says to the elephant, hey, I love this game. This is one of my favorite games. So they go into the living room, they play a game together, and the elephant is absolutely horrible at this game because it's a game for giraffes. But he still plays and has fun, and they laugh at each other. After the game, the giraffe looks at the elephant and is like, let's, let's do this. Let's play your favorite game. So the elephant teaches the game to the giraffe, and they play. How is it possible for an elephant and a giraffe to be friends? How is it possible for this friendship to occur? What is happening in this story for there to be friendship, community? The giraffe could have easily said to the elephant, you can't be my friend because you can't fit into my house. And the elephant could have said to the giraffe, you can't be my friend because your food is gross. In our world, there are so many different kinds of people. In this room, there are many different people, many different stories, backgrounds. We're from all over the world, gathered here right now in this moment. There are pastors with hair, and there are pastors who don't have hair. There are people who are pro-choice, and there are people who are pro-life. There are people who don't eat gluten, and then there are people who only eat gluten. There are people who like to run, and then there are people who like to watch people run. There are Christians who baptize babies, and there are Christians who baptize um, adults, believers. There are Christians who are liberals, and there are Christians who are conservatives. And this was no different for the first century Christians. There were a lot of different people 
and they had to figure out how they were gonna worship together. They had to figure out how they were gonna get into a room and sing and praise Jesus, their Messiah and their Savior. So the question that is occurring here in Acts 15 is this. You have Jews and then you have Gentiles, which I always find the, the name Gentiles quite funny when you try to figure out what it means. It's pretty much anyone who's not a Jew. So most of us uh, who are not Jewish, um, maybe some of us, but there's Jews and then there's everybody else, right? Um, there's God's chosen people and then there's everybody else, right? And here's the issue that's occurring is, is that Gentiles and Jews, they eat different things. They behave differently. It's totally different cultures, totally different traditions. How are they going to be able to worship together? How are they going to be able to eat a meal together? How are they going to be able to do these things with one another? And so this is the question that I want to be asking as we read through this. Is there a place where Jews and Gentiles can be friends, worship God, and do life together? Is there a place where pro-choice and pro-lifers can worship together? Is there a place where those who struggle with same-sex attraction and those who struggle with the opposite sex attraction, is there a place where they can worship together? Is there a place where that can happen? Is it possible? Obviously, I've picked some of the hot topics uh, <laughs> that has been going around. In Acts 15, there's, uh, there's this centerpiece of the story of Acts. It's shifting. It's going from Peter to Paul. It's going from the Israelites to the Gentiles. It's shifting but it all comes back to the center where it started in Jerusalem, the church. What happens when grace comes to church? My first point that I would like to make is that there are two elements happening here. There's the law of Moses, and there's obviously the grace of Jesus. And so the law of Moses is point number one. It's becoming a Jew. And so let's read together Acts 15, 1 through 9. Some men came down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate within them, with them, meaning they were debating, they were angry, they were upset, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go down to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and bring up this question. So being sent on their way to the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. The Holy Spirit has entered their lives and changed them. And it brought great joy to the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter. The problem, this is where we'll pause right now, in Acts 15 is this, that the world, the non-Jews, are coming to believe in a Jewish Messiah. The prophetic, the prophecy had talked about a king who was going to come back and make a kingdom of God the king of David was going to return and reestablish his house. But here's the thing. This Jewish Messiah wasn't just being worshipped by Jews, but by Gentiles. Non-Jews were saying, this guy, this Jewish Messiah, this Jesus is my king. But they were not Jewish. This made Jews uncomfortable 
this bothered them because how can a giraffe and an elephant be friends? How can an elephant fit in a house made for giraffes? A necessary requirement in the law of Moses is this, that in order to convert to Judaism, you would have to be circumcised and you would have to keep the law of Moses. This is how you would enter into covenant with God, into relationship with God. This is how you would enter into God's kingdom and God's family. This was the way of blessing. But this new group invading the church, they were not converted to Judaism. They were not circumcised, and they did not know the law of Moses. But they were worshiping a Jewish Messiah, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And droves of them were coming to Christ. How is this possible? Are these people actually saved? Do they have a place in the kingdom of God? Circumcision was the mark that God owned you, that you belonged to him. And so in order to understand this dilemma that they're facing, we've got to understand circumcision a little bit. And you have to go to Genesis and Genesis 17 to be able to see the story of the first circumcision, which is Abraham at 99 years old. Some of you are thinking about that. God is making a family. He is making a people. And he's using a 99-year-old man. Some of you guys think you're done. You know, you're at the end. Hey, 99 years. We got, God can, is using you. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you many children. You're going to possess a land, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to become a great nation. And so how covenants were sealed was with the severing of an animal, with the bloodshed of an animal. And the reason why they would do that would be like, if I don't keep this covenant, whichever party doesn't, you will become like this animal and you will die. It's, it's, it's very dramatic. Um, but it's true. This is how God is working. He's like, we're going to make a covenant, but we're not going to use an animal. We're going to do circumcision. This covenant that God makes with Abraham was by the cutting of his foreskin. This was the outward mark of what was, what was true about Abraham before he was even circumcised, though, that he belonged to God. It was not circumcision that said, Abraham, now you're God's. But God said, you're mine, and you will be circumcised. Paul talks about this in Romans 4.11. It says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision. He was circumcised. And this was a seal saying that he belonged to God as he was a seal of righteousness. But he had this seal because of faith while he was still uncircumcised. I was trying to think of a story to explain this. Obviously, it's complicated. But the best that I could come up with was a story about my sister. I remember when my family was going through the adoption process. We were adopting a little girl from Guatemala, and her name was Ziomara. And long before she arrived, long before the outward signs were signed and sealed, long before the paperwork was legally stamped by the judge, she belonged to us. The price had been paid. She had been purchased. The space had been created in our home, and in our hearts. She was my sister, and as we waited for her to come home for two years, every single night, my family would gather around the dinner table and pray for her. She would finally arrive home, but she didn't look like me. 
She was not from America. She did not talk like me. She did not share my DNA, and she did not share my name. Legally, based on outward signs, not my sister. But because of God's grace, she already was. And we were already hers. It's because of God's grace that we have her. And it's because of God's grace that she has us. Abraham was not saved by outward circumcision, by the, you know, the paperwork, by the legal documents. For many are circumcised, right? But don't follow God. Many are born to parents who are biologically, you know, their parents. But you would not say those are your parents, right? Just because you bear the signs doesn't necessarily mean that you belong. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. By grace, families like the Puckets can adopt a little girl from Guatemala. By grace, a little girl named Ziamara Alvarez Mendoza can be called Grace Puckett. By grace, giraffes can be friends with elephants, and Jews can worship with Gentiles. This is the grace of Jesus. Wild, radical, unconditional, never seen before. Point two. The grace of Jesus becoming a Christian. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. So there's been a lot of debate, and Peter, he stands up, and he says this to them. And Peter's remembering 10 years ago with Cornelius, a Gentile, and his conversion, and how the Holy Spirit was poured out on him. And he says these words, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, and they would believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to this, to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you making God angry? Why are you stoking the fire? Why are you putting him to the test by placing a yoke, a burden, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as the Gentiles will be. Under the law of Moses, under the law of Moses, you cannot be part of God's family. You can't keep it. Under the law of Moses, if you are not circumcised and if you do not obey the law to perfection, the penalty for you is death and separation from God And this is for a Jew, and this is for a Gentile who converts to being a Jew. The law of Moses condemns you. It says you're not good enough. It does not save you. It does not rescue you. Peter says you're placing a yoke that is unbearable, that is too heavy. The law of Moses is unbearable for any man but one. And he came, and he bared it, and he fulfilled it. You see, the law of Moses, sometimes we can be quick to just throw it out and be like, okay, we don't need to think about that anymore. But really, you should because it's not pointless. It serves a purpose. It's designed to bring human flourishing and blessing. We actually need it and crave it. We need order and we need to follow it. But most importantly, the law is showing to us our deep and desperate need for sacrifice. It shows us this so much that in the law, there's actually a way to sacrifice. 
animals because you're not going to keep the law. So they are like, you're not going to keep it. You're not going to make it right. But if you don't, let's have a way to, for forgiveness. Let's have sacrifices, the shedding of blood of animals to make us clean, to make us righteous before God. So in the same way the law of Moses shows you that you need sacrifice, it shows us today that we need sacrifice too. And we need Jesus. Jesus says these words in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have actually come to fulfill them. He keeps the law to completion and doesn't break a single rule. But yet he dies. And yet he dies as if he is a criminal and a lawbreaker. Why? Why does he do this? You know, the circumcision party, the Jews who are bringing up this issue of circumcision, they have a point. They are right. You do need circumcision to be part of God's family. There does need to be shedding of blood. But the circumcision that is in Jesus is Jesus is saying, I will shed my blood. I will be cut off so that you can be brought in. The circumcision in Jesus is seen on the cross. He is the sign and seal, if you believe in him, that you belong to God. If you love Jesus, you are circumcised. Not of the flesh, though, but of the heart. We see in Deuteronomy 10, 12, in the law of Moses, say this, love God with all your heart, which would lead you to ask, why should I love God with all my heart? Well, it's because in Deuteronomy 10, 15, it says, God has set his heart on your fathers and on you. God loves you, so love him. Okay. Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. How do you do this? How do we get this circumcision? Not of the flesh, but of the heart. It's only one way, and it's coming to Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When I was in seminary at St. Louis, um, going to Covenant Seminary, I was deeply trying my best to get it right. I mean, I was working really hard to figure it all out. I mean, I was, I was, I was really trying, and I just kept failing. I mean, it was, I, I felt like God was such a burden for me. It was just so annoying to follow God, especially as a young man. I was like, this is just hard. I'm having to say no to all these things. I'm having to, you know, put to death my flesh constantly. I'm overwhelmed. I feel like when I make a little mistake, it's the end of the world. How could I possibly be forgiven? I was burdened. It was unbearable. And I remember sitting in these classes with these just brilliant men um, who were holy and following the Lord, and they'd been following the Lord not just for a few years, but for decades on decades. And I would sit there in these classrooms and be like, I want to be like them. What are the steps that I need to take to be like them, to reach this level of holiness? What laws do I need to follow? Let's add it to the ledger. I was missing it. I was missing the point. I was sitting in the class listening to this holy, lovely teacher, Phil Douglas, teach me. And he tells a story 
That's completely changed my life. He says, listen, we are like Rick Hoyt. And you might be wondering, who's Rick Hoyt? And maybe some of you guys know who Rick Hoyt is. But Rick Hoyt is a man with cerebral palsy. He was born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and he lost so much oxygen to his head that he he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Um, His life has been filled with just having to be completely, fully dependent on his mom and on his dad. When Rick was 15 years old, one of his friends, a lacrosse player, was paralyzed in an accident, and they were doing a charity run for him. And Rick was like, I want to run in it. Obviously, Rick cannot run. So that meant that Rick's dad would have to run for him. But Rick's dad was like, I'm not just going to run for you. I'm going to actually put you in a wheelchair, and I'm going to run with you. So Rick and his dad, they, they run this race. And after the race, Rick says to his dad, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. And so Rick's dad was like, let's keep running. So they just ran. And they just ran. And they just ran. Listen to this. They ran 72 marathons. Six Ironman triathlons. Rick's dad didn't do that alone. He did that with Rick. There's, there's a, a YouTube video, a clip, where it shows this man just swimming in the water, just pumping his arms. And he has his rope tied around his shoulders. And you're like, what is, what is he dragging? And it scans down, and there's this, there's this boy just laying in the rack with cerebral palsy. It's Rick. And he's just smiling ear to ear. His <laughs> dad's just grinding. And then it, then it pans, and it's his dad picking his, his son up out of the raft and, and running over to the bike, and he's putting his son in the bike, the car seat of the bike, and he's riding the bike. And it's just Rick just sitting there in the front, just like, come on, here we go, we're going to win. We're going for it. And then it shows, you know, uh, Rick getting picked up again and placed in the wheelchair, and then it's his dad running and pushing and then it shows the end when they finish. And here's, and you're at the end, they're, they're at the finish line. Rick's dad has been running, you know, miles upon miles, swimming miles upon miles, biking miles upon miles, and Rick's arms are just up in the air. Let's go. And they cross the finish line. Rick finishing first, of course. Rick's room is full of trophies and medals. Full of trophies and medals. This is the grace of Jesus. This is the easy yoke of Jesus. Just ride in the raft. Just get in the raft. Get in the car seat. Get on the wheelchair and let him run. He's going to get you home. He's going to finish it for you. And you're going to have a room full of trophies. Scott Saul says, All you have is Jesus plus nothing. All you need is Jesus plus nothing else. Christians believe becoming a Christian is believing that it's just Jesus. Jesus, period. To be part of God's family is only by grace, through faith in Jesus. Not through circumcision, not through works of the law, but because of Jesus. Third point is the kingdom of God becoming a church. What happens when grace comes to church? It gets messy, right? Real messy. 
James, the brother of Jesus, is speaking up in this section, verses 16 through 21. He's quoting in the first three verses from Amos 9. And he says this, after this, this is what Amos says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, the kingdom of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek God. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is this, and this is James speaking, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not require them to be circumcised. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, which are all cultural parts of the law of Moses in order to be able to share a meal together with Jews. From my ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So under the law of Moses, the house of David has fallen, right? David falls under this law, right? David the king. His children fail. His kingdom fails. The Jews fail, right? And now Israel's under the control of the Roman Empire. But in the grace of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, God's house David's house, God's kingdom is restored. But it's not how you think it would look. It's different. It's different than what the Jews thought it would look like. Because the kingdom's not for Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for you and I. It's for every nation. And it's for everyone who's called by the Holy Spirit, who is circumcised in the heart, whose heart is marked and belongs to God. The leaders in the first century church gather at the Jerusalem council and they are upset. They're at odds with each other. And they're trying to answer this question, are we saved by law or are we saved by grace? Is the church a Jewish sect or the international family of God? And what do they do? They argue, right? But they listen to each other. They open their minds to be changed. They offer each other grace and they come together around this truth that it's all about Jesus, Jesus changes hearts, which changes behaviors. But it starts with Jesus. The result of this is a letter calling the church to love Jesus and to love each other. The Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in the flesh because of grace. But because of grace, the Gentiles should show grace to their Jewish brothers and sisters by abstaining from their idols from their cultural traditions that would inhibit them from worshiping with the Jews. Because God's church, becoming God's church, involves different people, different backgrounds, different ideas and different traditions and cultures. It's for the world. It's not just for the Jews. The giraffe can invite the elephant over for dinner and they can sit on the floor, they can play games, they can be friends because of grace. A lot of giraffes and elephants in this room. There's a lot of giraffes and elephants at youth group too. When I I was share a story, we we had a student come to youth group uh, who who was same sex attracted. He was struggling with same sex attraction and he was seeking help. And so we we walked with him and and I built a relationship with him. Uh, And he ended up actually starting to date um, another another person, another guy. Um, acting out on his same-sex attraction. I remember sitting down with him and having a really hard conversation, having to say to him, hey, this is wrong. This is not how it should be. This is not how God designed relationships. 
it was really hard to have that conversation with him. He didn't like what I had to say, but he understood that I still loved him. I listened to him. I heard his voice. I heard what he had to say. I remember um, also finishing that conversation before he left. I remember saying to him, but listen, you are always welcomed at youth group. You're always welcome here at Seven Rivers Church to come here. This is a place for sinners. You're always welcome. And you know what? Even your boyfriend is welcome to come as well. So the next week, guess who comes to youth group? Him and his boyfriend. His boyfriend walks straight up to me. He says, every ounce of me wants to punch you in the face. And that's, within, that's reasonable, right? I mean, I, I've stood in the way. And I said, well, let's talk after youth group and let's see what happens. So after youth group, we talked, and he shared about his story. He shared about his shame. He shared about his trauma and the unimaginable things that have occurred in his life. And by the end of the conversation, he said, you know what? I would love to meet with you more. I said, I would love that as well. I would love to go to lunch with you. So that following week, we went to lunch. We began meeting at Panera frequently. And we actually opened up the prodigal God by Tim Keller and read a chapter together. They started coming to youth group as well, and we were just having conversations, building relationship. But you know it was always present every time we met at Panera? They didn't realize this, but they were walking out the gospel, and so was I. Grace to share a meal. Every time they came to youth group, grace to be in the same room together. I disagree with you completely. You disagree with me completely. We are not on the same page, but yet we can eat together still. We can still do life, and we can share it's grace. The student who I had a strong relationship with, he repented. He went to high school camp with me. And at high school camp, he shared with me and confessed with me his sins and how he was in love with Jesus. How Jesus was worth it. We're sacrificing his desires. And how he was moved by the fact that Jesus loves him still. Jesus is crazy about him, just as much as he is about me. And we cry together because of grace. This is what grace looks like when it comes to church. It's a process. It's messy. It is not clean cut. We get in the weeds. We make a lot of mistakes. I had to say sorry to him many times. He had to say sorry to me many times. But the Lord is at work and the tension. In that moments is we're experiencing the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, the pain. I remember uh, when George Floyd, an African-American, was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota by a white police officer. I remember this because one of my friends, he's like, I'm gonna go to an African-American church this weekend, the same week that that happened. I was like, okay, that's bold. Uh, So he decided as a white man to go to an African-American church that weekend of George Floyd's Um, killing and he didn't know what to expect he didn't know if he would be accepted he didn't know if he would be he would offend them he didn't know if he would make them uncomfortable and he probably he probably did a lot of those things right by showing up I'm sure he did but you know what happened and he was blown away by this they showed him grace they invited him to grieve with them they invited him to worship with them they invited him to pray with them even though he was an elephant They opened up the door. Even though he was an elephant, they said, let's sit on the floor. Even though he was an elephant, they said, let's play your favorite game. He said he felt Jesus 
in tangible ways as they hugged him. He said he felt Jesus in tangible ways as they prayed for him. He said he felt Jesus in tangible ways as he worshiped with them. Because of grace. They were showing him grace, and he was showing them grace. When grace comes to church, there's a member in our church who I've hurt and wounded. I've hurt. They're also my neighbor. I remember driving around the circle one day, and as I was driving around the circle, this neighbor of mine, I just moved to this neighborhood, so I didn't know people. And I was new at the church. I didn't know that many people at church. And I remember uh, they did something that bothered me, and so I rolled down my window, and I said some words. <laughs> Moment of weakness. And I remember going to church that next weekend, sitting down in the pews and looking a few rows up, and sure enough, there is my neighbor who I said those words to, sitting right in front of me. I was so ashamed. I was so worried. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> this person has entrusted me with their spiritual guidance, and I have I've completely made a fool of myself. And so I hid, and I tried to ignore and the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, repent, talk to them. So a few years go by. <laughs> Man, I finally caved. I was driving past their house, and it was like the Lord grabbed me by the neck and said, you need to get out of this car and talk to these people. And so I parked the car in their parking lot. It was raining, too, just pouring rain. I get out of the car. I go up to their door, knock on the door. They answer the door, and, I say to, and they say, Pastor Mikey, What's going on? What are you doing here? And I said with a choked up voice, do you remember someone, possibly a few years ago, cursing at you from their car? And he said, yeah, we actually, we do remember that incident. I said, that person was me. And they were, they were surprised. And there was a silence between us. And there was a wall of tears that began to form in my eyes. And I said to them, I'm so sorry. I've wounded you and I've hurt you. I didn't know what was going to happen next. But they hugged me and I just cried in their arms. And they said, Mike, I forgive you and it's okay. When grace comes to church, right? Messy. Messy. I felt the arms of Jesus though. I felt him. Is there a place for Jews and Gentiles? Is there a place for pro-choice and pro-lifers to come together and worship? Is there a place for those who struggle with opposite sex attraction and for those who struggle with same-sex attraction to come together and worship Jesus? There is. It's called the church. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called Seven Rivers. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you will circumcise our hearts, that you will show us that you love us no matter what, that it is Jesus plus nothing else. Father, I pray for those in this room who are not circumcised in the heart, and that if they want to come to know you, that they would just open their hearts right now and say, Jesus, I need you. I confess that I'm wrong. I confess I have sinned. I want to be part of a community where it's messy and beautiful, but full of grace. Father, help us to be that for our community, and be that for each other and our neighbors. We love you and we need you.
Jesus' name, amen.